Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today's episode 315. It's titled, Are We Being Forced to Buy Stocks? Last week in the Insider's Guide email newsletter, I pointed out the expensive valuation of U.S. stocks. Specifically, I showed that the forward price-to-earnings ratio, the P.E. based on earnings estimates over the next year, was 22.9. That's three standard deviations above its average of 16 times going back to 2003. That's data from Ned Davis Research. In reply to that email, Andrew wrote, regarding stocks being expensive on a forward PE, true, but there's no alternative. What do you do with bond yields near zero and the Vanguard Total Stock Market Index Fund yielding 2%? Buy VTI, the Vanguard Total Stock Market ETF. He also forwarded to me a paper by Bridgewater Associates, which I'll discuss in more detail later in this episode. I had a similar question from a Plus member in the Money for the Rest of Us Plus member forums. He wrote, so the Fed signals that it wants to keep rates low for three more years. Canada's pension fund is reevaluating bond holdings, and you've got an army of small and large investors bidding up companies like Tesla and Snowflake to absurdly high PEs. All this combines to make me think, are we as individual investors now forced to buy equities? Is this the mother of all bubbles in which there's literally no other thing suitable for purchase? There is a lot of speculation in stocks right now. Jim Bianco of Bianco Research pointed out that small traders are dominating the options market. They are most of the trades right now. And 75% of that volume is in option contracts that expire in two weeks. So short-term bets. We can look at South Korea. An article from Bloomberg pointed out that day traders in South Korea have accounted for 87.5% of the total value of stocks traded in the first part of September. Yu Sung Min, chief strategist at Samsung Securities, said retail investors appear to be seeking short-term profits after hearing their next-door neighbors earned lots of money from stocks after the March sell-off. We're seeing a similar situation in India. The Financial Times reports that the number of individual investor accounts rose 20% from the start of the year to 24 million. And they point out that around the world, an influx of investors are investing in stocks for the first time. Are we in a bubble? Is it a speculative frenzy? Are we forced to buy these stocks because there are no alternatives with bond yields so low? One of the things I like to do in investing is think about what's different this time. What's unusual? What what doesn't fit the pattern? I had two instances outside of investing this past week where something didn't fit the pattern. LaPerle and I were driving up in the mountains of Montana and a small bear A cub, really, bolted right in front of us. No idea what it was running from. 
My son suggested he was running from the year 2020. And then, a few days later, at our front door, there were seven cows drinking water from the driveway, eating our bushes. There are no cows around us. We live in an area that nobody keeps cows, but there they were, right in front of my house. Turns out they had strayed from the National Forest, which is not very far. Some outfitters have grazing rights and drop off the cows and leave them there all summer, pick them up come late October, and they had strayed down because some of the newly cut barley fields. But it didn't fit the pattern. Cows at your front door don't fit the pattern. What's different now on the investing front that could justify more expensive valuations for stocks? Well, for the first time ever, U.S. interest rates are near zero from short term out to 10 years. This is known as a flat yield curve, which isn't unusual. We've had flat yield curves in the past, but it's flat near zero. There was a flat yield curve where 10-year treasury bonds and cash were yielding similar back from 2005 to 2007, but they were yielding 4%. And from 2000 to 2002, cash and 10-year treasuries were yielding 5 to 6%. Today, the 10-year treasury yield is 0.6%, and cash is zero. The Federal Reserve intends to keep it that way. Their recent policy statement suggests that they will keep their policy rate, what's known as the Fed funds rate, near zero until labor market conditions have improved. The unemployment rate has dropped closer to its maximum employment. And that inflation has risen to 2% and is on track to moderately exceed 2%. They included their economic and rate projections, and all but four officials on the committee expect the Fed funds rate to still be near zero at the end of 2023. Rates are low across the board. It is a different investment environment than we have ever faced before. And that's what this paper by Bridgewater Associates was about. It was titled Grappling with the New Reality of Zero Bond Yields, Virtually Everywhere. It was written by Bob Prince, Greg Jensen, Melissa Safier, and Jim Haskell. I discussed Bridgewater Associates founder Ray Dalio's views back in episode 300, The Changing World Order, and this paper builds off that. But in this particular paper, they wrote, given the status of the U.S. dollar as the primary reserve currency, and U.S. bonds as the risk-free asset, having the U.S. bond yield at or near zero goes beyond the implications for bonds, the asset, because the interest rate is the price of credit and is the discount rate on all other cash flows. What do they mean? Well, the best estimate of bond returns over the next decade is the starting yield. If you buy a 10-year treasury bond right now, it's yielding 0.6%. 10 years down the road, you'll probably have earned about 0.6% annualized. But they also point out that that risk-free rate is used to value other asset classes. It's done through what is known as a present value calculation, where we look at a stream of cash flows, such as dividends from stocks, and we price them in today's dollars. We discount that future cash flow or reduce it by a specific interest rate. And the lower that interest rate, the more valuable those cash flows are because of how these present value calculations work. So they're pointing out that lower interest rates then justify more expensive stock prices, higher valuations, because 
the value of those future cash flows will be higher in today's dollars because the discount rate is lower. What are valuations for stocks? And there's a number of ways we can measure that. Let's look at the price-to-earnings ratio of the S&P 500 index, a measure of U.S. large company stocks, using its real net of inflation 10-year average earnings. This is a calculation by Ned Davis Research. So it's the price, the S&P 500, divided by the average real earnings over the past decade. Currently, that P.E. is 32.2. It is two standard deviations above its average of 16. This data goes back to 1881, so it's a very, very long data set. There were two other times where it was this high or higher. In the year 2000, at the peak of the Internet stock bubble, the P.E. was 46. In 1929, the P.E. was also 32, both times right before severe sell-offs in the stock market. But the difference was interest rates were much higher back then. In the year 2000, the 10-year Treasury bond yield was 4%, and in 1929, it was 3.6%. So all things being equal with interest rates at 0.6%, valuations, the P.E. should be higher than its historical average. What we need to do is compare that valuation relative to bonds. So adjust for the fact that interest rates are much lower. So the present value of cash flows is higher. We can do that using an earnings yield calculation, which is the inverse of the price to earnings ratio. The PE is the price divided by earnings. Earnings yield is the earnings divided by price. The higher the earnings yield, the cheaper the valuation and the lower the earnings yield, the more expensive the valuation. At the end of August, the earnings yield for the S&P 500 was 2.8%. That's based on earnings over the previous 12 months. I've mentioned the 10-year Treasury yield was 0.65%. And so the spread or the difference is about 2.2%. The bigger that spread or the differential between the earnings yield and the yield on bonds, the more attractive stocks are relative to bonds. So it's a very wide spread, then stocks are more attractive. That spread can be thought of as a risk premium. What additional yield do investors require to hold riskier stocks versus relatively risk-free bonds? Right now, we have a spread of positive 2.2%. In the year 2000, the spread was negative 2% because interest rates on 10-year treasuries at 5.5% were higher than the earnings yield on stocks, which were about 3.5%. So stocks are significantly more attractive relative to bonds today than they were back in the year 2000. Capital economics and economic research firms suggest that spread, which is basically in line with its historical average, perhaps should be even narrower because of what central banks have been willing to do during this crisis. Create and revive programs to support riskier assets like stocks and corporate bonds. And with the Fed and other central banks providing perhaps a backstop that that could justify even higher valuations. The flip side to that argument is something that Bridgewater suggested in their paper, that because interest rates are so low right now, that there's not a lot of room for the Federal Reserve to cut rates if stock markets fall and the economy slows. They write, normally when economic conditions are deteriorating and equities are falling, a bottom is formed when the central bank steps in 
and provides enough easing to offset these negative pressures. This supports equities in two ways. The support to the economy helps stabilize earnings prospects, and the declining discount rate pushes up the present value of future earnings. So the present value goes up because rates are falling. They provide some data looking at the 10 biggest drawdowns in stocks going back to 1925. The average was a 40% decline. Short-term rates fell on average 2.9 percentage points, and long-term rates fell by 1.6 percentage points. Rates were cut, and longer-term rates fell. There's less room for that today because rates are already zero, and longer-term bond yields are zero. Just looking at short-term policy rate, the average decline during economic slowdowns and bear markets has been a 4.6% decline in the Fed funds rate and we're already near zero. So stocks are pricey on an absolute basis, not necessarily in bubble territory, although there are certainly segments and certain stocks that are. Stocks are more reasonably priced relative to bonds because interest rates are low and because of this present value calculation that I've discussed. What do we do to invest in this environment? Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one program and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. With everything getting more expensive these days, it's wise to find ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. You can do that with NetSuite. And by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com david. That's netsuite.com david. netsuite.com david. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. I've certainly given some suggestions. For example, back in episode 309, we discussed some investments to overcome very low interest rates, such as I-bonds, which is a type of inflation-protected bond, preferred stocks, dividend-paying stocks, and the volatility risk premium, which is an option strategy where you basically generate some income. All of those options accomplish something that Bridgewater 
suggests that investors need to do. Select assets that will outperform cash over time and diversify those assets based on how they will react to future economic scenarios. They're describing a role-based asset allocation approach, one of the three asset allocation methods I discussed back in episode 306. A role-based approach where different assets perform differently based on different economic scenarios. A strategic asset allocation where you're just diversifying into a number of asset classes that yield more than cash. And then an asset garden approach where you add additional diversification, but you're not trying to optimize it per se. Bridgewater is approaching the current environment in a number of different ways. They've added inflation hedges such as gold, which they believe is a countercurrency and a storehouse of wealth whose value tends to increase when fiat currencies are falling. In other words, when there's more inflation. There's a comprehensive guide to investing in gold on the Money for the Rest of Us website under guides. They're also buying treasury inflation protection securities, which are inflation-linked bonds. And they pointed something out that I thought was very helpful. In a role-based asset allocation approach, often investors will hold long-term bonds with the idea that if stocks are falling off, interest rates are falling, and the bonds appreciate to offset some of those stock losses. But with nominal treasuries bonds yielding close to zero, there's less room because of that zero bound, that zero floor. But TIPS regularly see their yield go negative. The yield on 10-year Treasury Inflation Protection Securities right now is negative 1%. Now, I've owned TIPS. I bought some. I added a sizable position back in March. But the yield then was positive, 0.6%. So you were getting some yield plus the inflation protection. Now, with negative yields on TIPS, you're not even getting a full inflation protection. But as a strategy to offset some of the downside to stocks and to get some inflation protection, there is an argument to be made to invest in TIPS. A second thing Bridgewater is doing, and certainly something that I do and we, we share in Money for the Rest of Us Plus, is geographic diversification. Not invest completely in the U.S. And their reasoning is that we're in a period of deglobalization and fragmentation. When the world is more tightly connected, then global stock markets tend to move closer together. But if there's more fragmentation, then potentially you could see different regions perform differently at different times. Specifically China, they point out at the region of the U.S., the Europe bloc, and then China and surrounding Asian countries. We've seen developed countries be more upset at China recently. There's been trade disputes. There's been disputes regarding COVID-19. There's been issues with China being more aggressive in some of their foreign policy actions. And then we have technology that's improving, that's making things in your own country more competitive due to automation that you don't necessarily have to depend on cheap labor from other countries. And so that potentially is leading to less globalization, which means potentially different regions, their stock markets will be less correlated. So having greater geographical diversification. Third thing Bridgewater Associates is doing is they are trying to identify specific stocks that have high quality balance sheets, they have operating stability, steady earnings, so that the stocks will act more like bonds. Obviously, there'll be more volatility, but you can feel more confident, at least in the coupon, 
the dividend. And this is something that, that I did in my portfolio and we changed in the model portfolios back in early June to add dividend paying stocks, higher quality dividend paying stocks so we can be more dependent on that dividend. One of the plus members in responding to the, the member's question, are we forced to buy stocks, shared what he's doing. He wrote, I just bought more shares in two of my biggest losers in the crisis, the Vanguard FTSE All World High Dividend Yield ETF and the iShares Developed Market Property Yield ETF. So he bought dividend-paying stocks and he bought real estate investment trust. The stock ETF has 1,600 holdings. Its earnings yield is 6.7% compared to the 2.8% earnings yield for the S&P 500 index. Its dividend yield is 4.2% versus less than 2% for the S&P 500. He continued, not so long ago, I asked a question here about whether even holding this was a bad idea because it has actually performed poorly compared to more growth-oriented funds that are concentrated in the U.S. and tech companies. I don't care anymore, he writes. This seems like a much safer play now, and I'll just buy more of it should it fall again. We don't have to buy the S&P 500. We can buy a diversified exposure to stocks through global stocks or even some country-specific stocks. Another member pointed out, paradoxically, the greatest threat to the stock market right now is real growth. If the economy picks up, we get real GDP growth, then that could cause interest rates to increase, which would reverse the process we've been through, the higher interest rates leading to lower present value of those future cash flows and perhaps a drop in asset prices unless cash flows increase enough, earnings, for example, to compensate for the impact on present value from a higher discount rate. A member wrote about something he's been struggling with because he did buy Japanese stocks. DFJ, this is a wisdom tree ETF that invests in dividend-paying small company Japanese stocks. We added this back in early June in the models. And this member held it and he says, like many of you and like David, I'm comfortable tilting towards asset classes and factors that I believe to be undervalued. And so to use one example, and he gives the example of DFJ. And he talked about it's small cap, it's got quality. And why do I believe this? In that this particular ETF will do better than the overall market. I do not have an informational edge regarding Japanese small cap quality stocks. Certainly, institutional investors know more than I do. The information on which I've based my decision is widely available. Small caps do well in economic recoveries. There's an ongoing pandemic that makes quality a prudent choice. And the Japanese market is far below its historical valuation. He mentions, in thinking about who's on the other side of the trade, it's probably not a piece of software that sold him the stock because of mispricings. So he has a view regarding the Japanese stock market, but he doesn't have an informational edge. He doesn't know whether Japanese stocks will outperform, but he has tilted toward them. He thought about this and came up with some, I think, some very insightful answers. He wrote, there are competing ways of valuing assets. And I, or we, are using some criteria while other investors are choosing other criteria. So different ways of looking at different asset classes. He points out that everything is too complex, so there's not necessarily a consensus on that criteria. There's human psychology that leads many investors to make suboptimal decisions, despite their access to better information. And he pointed out investors differ in their goals and constraints. 
So you have all these investors, different views, different ways of looking at it, which means the markets aren't efficient. They're not necessarily priced correctly. This is something Andrew W. Lowe points out in one of my favorite finance books, Adaptive Markets. He says the wisdom of the crowd depends on the heirs of individual investors canceling each other out. But if investors exhibit certain behavioral patterns that are irrational in similar ways, that means the heirs don't cancel each other out. And it could lead to mispriced assets. Just like if you had a scale that's averaged upwards, doesn't matter how much you weigh yourself, it's still going to be wrong. Investors can get irrational and they don't know. He writes, the history of markets is filled with rational investors going wrong with utter confidence in the soundness of their judgment until brought down by information just beyond their range of consideration or understanding. We don't know what's going to do the best. We can look at metrics and make educated guesses. We can look at the cash flow yield. What's the dividend yield for stocks? What's the interest rate for bonds? What's the dividend yield for REITs? What's that cash flow? What's a reasonable expectation for the cash flow growth over time? And what are investors paying for the cash flow, the valuation? In the case of this small cap Japanese ETF, DFJ, its dividend yields over 3% compared to less than 2% for the S&P 500. Morningstar data suggests that earnings could grow at 15% or more. And the price to earnings ratio is 14 versus close to 30 for the S&P 500. It's a reasonable investment, the prudent choice. Now, you don't put all your money in it, but that could be one aspect. It's a type of stock to buy. Yes, the stock market's more expensive than it has been, but we're in an unusual environment. But we can invest in a way to still participate in stocks without plowing into Tesla or buying options on Tesla like the dentist I mentioned last week. We can thrive in this uncertain investment environment because there's always something that breaks the pattern. But investing geographically, having inflation hedges, perhaps using dividend-paying stocks, preferred stock, and other asset classes that I've discussed this week and in other weeks of the podcast, we can earn more than cash and have a more balanced portfolio by having different return drivers. That, then, is episode 315. Thanks for listening to the episode. If you would like to learn more about investing to become a better investor, I have two ways that I can help you with that. First, you could subscribe to my free email newsletter. It's called The Insider's Guide. It's where I'll share the links and articles that I mentioned in the podcast episode, as well as an essay on money, investing in the economy, and other valuable content. You can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. The second way that you can become a better investor, get more serious about your investing, is to become a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus. With Plus membership, you get access to professional-grade portfolio tools, training, and a community to help you stay on track, tune out the noise, and grow your wealth with confidence. With your growing net worth, isn't it time to invest like a professional? With a focus on global multi-asset class portfolios, reasonable expected return and risk assumptions, achieving a real net of inflation growth, strategic adjustments as markets and economies evolve, and controlling fees and taxes. Money for the Rest of Us Plus is for those who choose to manage their own investments. It provides tools and training to manage an institutional quality investment portfolio. You can learn more at moneyfortherestofus.com.
Everything I've shared in this episode has been for general education and not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.